0: Welcome to a JoyCast from Joy 94.9. Visit joy.org.au to find out more about our JoyCasts. Via SkatePod on Joy and via podcast at joy.org.au forward slash SkatePod. You're now listening to The Escape Pod with Russ Masterton and Joe Pryor. And so we'd like to welcome to the studio today, Sarah Meehan. Sarah, welcome to The Escape Pod. How are you? We're well. How are you? Good.
1: I'm great. Thank you.
2: Excellent. (laughs) Great to have you on the show.
0: Thank
1: you. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
2: Now, Sarah, as a bit of background, you um, uh, love travelling, yes, I do, um, and you're a um, uh, a single woman who yes. have have um, reached the far corners of our planet. Yes, that's correct. Um, and your your love of travel would <laughs> mm. it would have began when you were living in France. Am I correct? Was that is Ma- that winding? Maybe, maybe before that. Okay, you yeah. Know,
1: in my in my early twenties, do I tell. I kind of quit, yep. quit my job and um, you quit your job. Took a backpack and headed off. Uh, to see the Berlin Wall fall, I think that was my first inspiration.
2: Ah. Ah, very exciting. Um,
1: and uh, yes, yeah, so I headed off to see Europe after the fall of the wall, and um, and I've been travelling ever since. So yeah, lucky. And mostly independently, so I like to do it my own way. So uh,
2: that's excellent. So Sarah, what um, what was it like when the the wall was coming down?
1: Uh, it was. Uh, it was, a, well, it's a life-changing experience, I suppose, being part of a major global political event like that. Um, so I have shots of myself actually chipping chunks of the Berlin Wall down, which I've kept, um, and all sorts that's, of that, reminders. That's a
0: good thing of, mm. for cultural curators, isn't it, when people go mm. and they take parts of the wall?
1: <laughs> well, I think at that stage there was so much already being taken. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but when <laughs> I was there... You've
2: educated, got your own museum in yeah, Brunswick, right? for sure.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Checkpoint Charlie was still there. You know, you got to walk in, in into East Berlin and there was lots of... Nothing much had changed at that point and that was the importance of being there for yes. me at that time. absolutely. So you could actually walk into the back streets and kind of get lost and, and you know, and you could find things that were kind of you know, shrapnel holes in the in the facades of the buildings where you could actually see where there'd been conflict at some stage mm. or, or a burnt-out synagogue. I and remember. did you
2: get the feeling it was part of history when you were Absolutely. there?
1: Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think for me at that age, it was really important, instead of sort of watching it on television, to actually get out and see and experience um, what had been happening in Europe historically. And uh, so I had a great... I have a great interest in history, so I, I saw a
2: lot of it. So, yeah. So as a as as a um a lady travelling, mm. what what did you do to prepare for this trip? It's it's you know you just decided one day right I'm going to quit my job, I'm going to go overseas, yeah. I'm going to see the, the the wall fall, and to her with the rest of the world, I am Sarah, hear me roar.
1: Yeah, so no, um, I sort of did a bit of planning. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was fortunate enough to have a friend uh, who wanted to travel, so we kind of hooked up and, and went together on that occasion. We were gone for about a year. Great. Um, and uh, I got very used to living out of my backpack and um found it very liberating um but i've done a lot of different things since then so that was just the start and i suppose as i've got older my travels become more and more adventurous so my destinations become more adventurous and i'm prepared to take more risks and and travel completely on my own and feel quite comfortable doing that so it's um it's it's been an evolution i think
2: that's fantastic (laughs) You're a bit like that too joe i mean you, you it's nothing to you to jump on a plane and go away and you enjoy your own company and you feel quite safe with what you do in the world yeah
0: so, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think traveling independently is um it's a really important thing that people need to learn how to do i mean it, it just it, it's liberating and and it um that sense of independence and and not happening to uh, worry about. <laughs> Another person's problems and baggage. Yes, <laughs> yeah. It's so much easier to sort sort out your itinerary and and how you're going to spend your day and and um, and if there's a problem, you can just solve it. Yes, I think you really learn those skills mm. and mm. and and you know you you learn how to. Just get, get stuff done because what are you going to do, sit on the, uh, in the pavement of a foreign country and just cry <laughs> because you just can't read the map? I mean, you know, you just you learn how to survive.
1: Yeah. yeah. I think the worst thing that can happen really, um, you know, from my experience, I've been through about 50 countries now. I've never really had any major, major disaster. Um, so, you know, from my perspective, I just make sure I'm prepared. In case that happens, and then I just go and enjoy myself and i don 't worry I tend not to worry about it so you know, I've heard I've had other friends who've had different experiences, but for me, I've just been really fortunate. I think the one of the worst things I had a rat nibble my pack in some barn somewhere, and that was about <laughs> it. That was about it. But um, so, yeah, I have been very lucky in my travels, and um, I, I do a bit of research, but not too much, and just find out about you know what the cultural norms are, and just try and blend in, right. you know, as quickly as possible, and not to sort of look too obvious. I think for me, I like to really immerse myself in, in the culture. And uh, feel as local as possible. And so I tend to travel uh, with more depth than breadth, if that makes sense. So I wouldn't go to a major place without sort of st- sort of spending quality time there and actually sitting in a park and enjoying a coffee or, and just watching the people.
2: And it does get you out of your shell too, doesn't it? If you if you um, are travelling alone, you, you've got an opportunity yeah. to to go up and, and talk to people, make new friends. And otherwise, it's going to be um, a, a very lonely trip if that's what you're into. But if you if you if you want to meet locals and other people, it's it certainly is the way to go. And, it is,
1: yeah.
2: And you're not a shy girl, are you, Sarah? No,
1: not really. <laughs> Although I feel a bit shy today, but <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, not really. I mean, I think um, when you're travelling, you meet um, people on a different level. Level, um, and you have that connection with them because you're all out there seeing the world together. So I have some great friends I've made from around the world. Um, when I was living in France, you know, made some beautiful friends there. Um, uh, just um, and, you know, more recent trips, like when I was in Nepal, for example, uh, met some like-minded people who were also there following their their path, their journey with their sort of spiritual practice. So that was really fabulous as well. And they're great people to have with you. You know, so you can share that when you get home.
0: What took you to Nepal?
1: uh And um, Was it your first trip? Yep, absolutely. My first trip to Nepal went on my own. Um, last very sort of uh, inspirational, uh, you know, spontaneity trip, but planned to the extent that I um, wanted to go and do a Buddhist um, meditation and lamb rim program for about a month, five weeks in a monastery over there. So... Yeah, so the the mantra obviously is very uh, reminiscent of my experiences over there, which were very much in that particular trip focused around um, Tibetan Buddhism and um, practice and teachings um, that took place while I was living at the monastery. And it's it's a really um, beautiful way to sort of experience um, Kathmandu and Nepal and, and the culture there, uh, which is, as I found out, very much a blend of... Um, of, uh, you know, the sort of Hindu aspects and the Buddhist aspects. But I, I, I remember posting on my Facebook page to my friends when I got to my hotel two things. The first was I think I'm in Nepal because there are so many, you know, potholes out the front of my hotel. I'm hoping this is the right hotel. But I think it is because the taxi actually had this big sticker right across the window saying Buddha was born in Nepal. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was fantastic. So I felt right at home straight away. And everywhere you went, people, you know, were acknowledging of that whole sort of sense of um, Buddhist spirituality in practice.
0: So it was wonderful. Mm. And how did you go about researching the which um, mm. monastery to stay at? Sure. Um, <clears throat> I was very
1: fortunate. I had uh, one of my teachers actually advise me about one particular place to go, which was Kapan Monastery, which is sort of in the north of, um, on the edge of Kathmandu. And it's and it's a very special place. It's been set up um, particularly for Westerners to go and learn about um, Tibetan Buddhism and to enhance their spiritual life and their practice. So they have a course every year for about um, five weeks where you live in the monastery um, and you uh, attend there. Um, and every day is a very structured day. So depending on how eager beaver you are, you can get up at five o'clock in the morning every day and go and do um, prostrations, but generally, the, the, the teachings um, you, you get up and do meditation first thing in the morning, have some breakfast, and then into a program of teachings. Um, Are they conducted in English? Yes, all in English and in the Gompa, which is an amazing environment, very beautiful art and um, you know, a spiritual sense, very qualified teachers like legitimate um, Tibetan Buddhists that have studied for many, many years and, and deeply understand the Dharma. Um, And a fantastic group of people. So when I was there, it was probably about 200, um, 230 people that came from all around the globe Um, and um, wonderful. And it was just very uplifting. You know, of all different ages, I think probably the youngest was, um, you know, late teens and there would would have been people there in their 60s um, enjoying it as well. So very diverse, very international, but very much a, a group of people that were all there because they wanted to do more than you know the normal kind of of trip in nepal um
0: and uh five weeks is a big commitment isn't it to
1: yeah to one location yeah look sure it is but um it's the the uh i suppose there's two things that you know about that you know you can travel and look at things or you can become part of part of what you're doing over there and become part of things and uh spending that time actually working on your mind in a place like that just reaps it's a life-changing experience so you know that's the benefit of it and you make friends that you you take with you because um you you start to discover the global community of people that actually spend their time um on their travels integrating something more meaningful and seeing the world at the same time so you can go on pilgrimage you can um, do teachings, and it's it's you know through through Buddhist organisations around the world, and um, you know through Northern India, Nepal, various other parts. There's a, a retreat I was looking at that's on in Bali in, at towards the end of May with a you know an internationally renowned um, Tibetan Buddhist monk. Um, and each retreat has a different theme. So depending on where you're at with your journey, you know, you might want to spend some time retreating about thinking about compassion or you might want to, you know, about love and kindness. Or you might want to, you know, retreat and think about death and dying. It just depends on what you want to learn at the, at the particular time. But the course at Kapan is, I think, probably the best one. It's the deepest um you know, for people that want to experience that. But it's not a go and sit in a room and think about nothing. It's a real you, – you do have a structured program. You do um, have discussion group um and there are certain um, precepts you've got to subscribe to while you're obviously staying in a monastery, and there are hundreds of monks there. And I guess that f-
0: means no martinis at five o'clock. No
1: martinis <laughs> at five. No, um, no alcohol at all. In fact, um, oh my goodness, on the mo- in the monastery. So, oh my god, a
2: detox as well.
1: Ah! Uh, so yeah, detox of fully vegetarian food, um, and uh, no, and the, for all, for all the people who have to have their technology, you have to lock your phone up and your your, your tablet in the in the safe for the duration. There's no internet either. That they don't want you being distracted from the outside world. They want you completely focused
0: on your mind. Do they pat you down for hip flasks, or is it just an honor system? It's an honor system, right? That's okay then.
1: But you know, there was a few, <laughs> a few, a few wayward people did discover the little um, pub down the road. Oh, did <laughs> they?
2: were you one of the wayward people? Well, I,
1: I suppose I did break out at one stage and go. I, I took to walking um,
0: in the afternoons um, <laughs> to, to find a to find a still in someone's backyard. Strangely, a,
2: my spiritual journey. He is taking me to the pub. <laughs> well,
1: actually, in my case, it took me to the Bodhnath Stupa, which was probably about a half-hour walk from the monastery through the streets. And um, that is one of the world's great Buddhist um, stupas to go and visit. It's World Heritage UNESCO-listed. It was damaged in the earthquake, but it is under repair. Um and it's the wish-fulfilling stupa, so the, the the history of it and the spirituality of it is that you actually make a wish as soon as you see the stupa um, and, and the stupa and say your prayers and do your circumambulation around the stupa right. and every day there's hordes of people sort of all going in the same direction around the stupa and it's, um, it's an amazing place to go and it's also fabulous if you're just a tourist and you want to go and buy some souvenirs, there's an amazing sort of collection of shops all around the stupa, all very much in that sort of Tibetan Buddhist tradition, so you can pretty much buy anything you want there to bring home that's um, of a Buddhist nature. So it's fantastic,
2: yeah. I just love the whole concept of of not having contact with the outside world. It's it's not something that I've chosen to do on one of my holidays and go on a retreat, but Mm I... I, I I mean, I think I need to do that at some stage in my life. I, I am obsessed by Facebook. I love my phone. Uh, you know, I, I'm always looking at it thinking, oh, I wonder what's happening out in the big wide world. But what you're describing to me just sounds, it just sounds A, spiritually good for you, and B, it just sounds so peaceful and nice. Well,
1: it's, it's how it used to be. Like, I mean, I can remember when I used to travel, uh, when I was a lot younger, no one had mobile phones. I mean, you had to stop at the phone booths and ring home from a phone booth. Reverse if you could charges. And reverse charges and then stand there in the street and wait for your mum to ring you back and say, darling, where are you?
2: Or as my mother, <laughs> in my, my mother's case, no, I won't.
1: <laughs> Do you know, so it's, it's really different nowadays. You don't, there's that constant thing where you can, you, can, you can post wherever you are in the world. Um, and it was actually quite lovely not to have to do that. It was, um, you know, uh, the monks that ran the internet cafe were lovely. That we, but they did, they did, they certainly certainly did switch it off with great gusto at the right time. <laughs> <laughs> But so, yeah, it, it was a beautiful life experience. And um, and I think, you know, immersion like that, I think what it does give you is that ability to take the practices home and start implementing them. And, and it sort of accelerates your growth, basically.
2: And how do our listeners find out about these places, Sarah? Well,
1: they? if they just Google, um, you know, Kopard Monastery, they will get it. Um, it will come up. But there are other places in, in, in Kathmandu Valley where you can go and do similar kind of retreats. Um, And there are centres right throughout um, the world where you can. But I think from a, you know, there are centres in Dharamsala. There are centres in um, Bodhigaya. There's centres in a whole range of places where you can go in and do retreats. You don't have to do a month or five weeks. You can go for a week and do a meditation course um, and each course offers something different, but just do your research about what you're going to go and do. If you think, if you seriously just want to veg out, you're better off going to a beach in Thailand and just sitting on the on the white sand with your coconut. If you actually want to go and and uh, and, and and you know unravel something different, well then you know go go and do your meditation program. It's a different form of um, of, of relief from all the pressures. Yeah,
2: I'm sitting in a studio with two fabulous women. I've got Sarah here who goes on these spiritual retreats, and I've got the gorgeous Joe here who goes to a six-star resort in in, in Vietnam and 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 waves waves her um, her pashmina around during um, cocktail hours. So, I mean, I'm trying to weigh weigh up the balances here. Which would I prefer? Well, I think both. <laughs> yeah,
0: I think I think you have to do both. I was just thinking, I've got. Um uh, two you know really lovely friends and they um they travel every second year to um india to a particular um ashram to for a 14 day retreat and it's something that they look forward to and it's very it's very much it's part of their life yeah. you know that you know that at that time of the year every second year that's mm-hmm. where they'll be so it's a great balance <laughs> Joy 94.9 is a GLBTIQ community radio station in Melbourne, Australia. Support Joy 94.9 by becoming a member at joy.org.au. That's not the only reason you pack your bags. Absolutely you not. You like to also see the other side of, of life and, and party just a little bit?
1: Yes, I just got back from a beautiful 10-day sojourn in Bali with a group of about 20 friends. And we had a. Very, oh, was this very when someone time. in the
0: studio turned um, uh, a, a big number? It could have been a special occasion. Yes. yes.
2: We don't mention the F word here.
1: <laughs> no, we <laughs> do <laughs> <laughs> But uh, we had a week of. It was fantastic. We had a whole complex of villas and uh, beautiful um, environment. And we had a huge. We had. Uh, it was an '80s theme, so I think it's the only time I've ever packed an Afro, plat- silver platform heels. And flares to go to Bali,
0: and that was an eight. That sounds like a seventies theme.
1: Well, it was sort of. I think I was a bit. bit, My my intention was to be a bit bony. M. Right. Um. And uh, but so we had a couple of nights where we had live performances and all sorts of things going on, and everybody dressed up. It was. I don't think the staff at the villa quite knew what they. (laughs) What They had uh, staying with them until a few of the boys turned up wearing sort of Swedish lifeguard costumes.
2: And we had to tell them repeatedly, stay away from the karaoke machine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> was, was that the Swedish boys or the staff? The
2: staff. The staff.
1: <laughs> but having said that, in the girls' villa, we did do a little meditation and um, in the mornings, on about three of the mornings, and that was beautiful as well.
2: Mm. So Nepal, Bali... Mm. Alaska. I hear you're a keen motorhome <laughs> driver in Alaska. Yeah, where one did of you my see adventures. bears and glaciers? And
1: well, what I if you got a nickname up there too? Didn't you? I did, <laughs> yes. in fact. The lovely guy I travelled with, who met me at the airport, but. Uh, Yes, called me Beaver, um, but I called him Bear, so it was sort of Bear and Beaver do Alaska. Oh my goodness! Uh, and uh, so we had it. We hired a motorhome for a couple of weeks, and um, it was the, one of the funnest trips I've ever had. We laughed the whole way, um, mind you. He made me drive all the really challenging bits over the wobbly bridges and through the tunnels, but um, other than that, it was it was fantastic. Um, it's the only place in the world, I think, where you arrive at the baggage collect point and there's a stuffed bear or a stuffed. Polar Uh, bear. Polar bear and a stuffed gauche and a stuffed beaver in the cases all along the... And, of course, I came in from Hawaii, so I was wearing shorts and a Hawaiian T-shirt, and I think it was 6 o'clock in the morning and freezing.
0: Oh, my goodness. And I was
1: standing there looking at these stuffed animals in Alaska, waiting for my travelling companion to pick me up. And um, I was sort of waiting outside in the in the car collection area, and all these strapping lumberjacky uh, Alaskan guys were pulling up in these massive four wheel drives that seemed much bigger than what we have in Australia, I might add. And of course, my my travelling companion turned up in a little blue bubble rental car, sh- <laughs> shrieking out the window.
0: <laughs> in Mr Bean like fashion, was
1: it? <laughs> sort of a bit, a bit Mr Beanish, but um, we did get over that. <laughs> but we had a fantastic time. If you like that sort of, uh, get you know, getting away to um, Alaska is about the third of the size of the whole of the United States all over again, and a lot of people forget that. And it's probably the most beautiful state.
2: It's a magnificent driving holiday, isn't it? It really is superb. Yeah. You
1: couldn't. Fault um, it. Every corner you felt like you had to pull over for the vista, and you know there's only 250,000 people, I think, in Alaska. Yes. Um, so it's essentially the population of Geelong. Um, just remember that when you hear about Sarah Palin being the governor of uh, Alaska, really she's mayor of Geelong. Um <laughs> uh, well,
0: we've got we've got the, the Duchess of Doreen who's tuned in as well today. So we're doing very well on the Escape Pod.
2: <laughs> the Duchess of Doreen is is listening. Gosh, we're having a big day today. Thank mm-hmm. you, Duchess. Um, what was the highlight of Alaska for you? You you would have gone out and seen something in Denali National Park and Denali
1: was amazing, obviously. Um, and um, just I think for me it was the the animals. I mean, you know, it's not every day that you just sort of can look out the window and there's a bear wandering along or a moose or an elk. Um, I think for me it was the animals and, and the actual beauty of it. But also, there were nights where we were we were parked in um, you know motorhome you know, uh, sites where we had people from all around the world come and sit by the fire and, and um, it was fantastic. We had a lot of laughs, um, too much cask wine and, um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, it just, it was a beautiful trip from a sort of, uh, you know, the majesty of the environment and the rivers and, um, yeah, it was it was just superb. Mm. It
2: is a it is very picturesque, yeah. a beautiful place to go to, and and I guess the nature of the beast being you can drive a big twelve twenty one foot motorhome around there because it doesn't have the um the scary population as the lower forty eight do in the United States. So it's 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 a great place to go and drive and get out into the wilderness and have a good good time.
1: Everyone's in a motorhome, um, and uh, you know it's easy to have a couple of people in a motorhome and feel like you can easily pull in and, and cook a meal or you know sit in a particular place and just enjoy the beauty of it um and i think you know the mount mountain the mountains were um uh, you know really really impressive um and of course um denali is actually bigger than everest which a lot of people don't realise it's actually the biggest mountain in the world from the base to the tip it's just that it doesn't sit on as high a plateau so its tip isn't actually the highest in the world but it's amazing to see it.
0: So is, is the motorhome preference because there just isn't the places to stay? If if you were doing a if you were just driving, for example, like you do in New Zealand, doing mm-hmm. a driving holiday and you go from town to town, there there are places that have got you know good accommodation options. Is one of the reasons why the motorhome choice is so popular? Is that because those options don't exist?
1: There yeah, are um, there are motels, um, but I think from what I could see, it was really really geared towards people having a motorhome. Yep. Um, every every park you pulled into uh, was Wi-Fi enabled. Um, I was surprised you could be out in the middle of absolute nowhere and there would be Wi-Fi. Um, so you know, you you didn't sort of feel that you couldn't um, you know access things that you needed to along the way, um, and and just you know, nothing more beautiful really than um, some of the things we did uh, going out on to, on the boats to the to the fas- fascias of the glaciers and and seeing that and. Um, out on Prince William Sound, you know, getting to see the humpback whales breach the water and and the, the, the sheer, you know, volume of wildlife that you, you can have just through going out for a day. Uh, it's quite amazing. It's so rich.
2: And the only way to do it, of course, is with Boney M, as you would have experienced. Yes, well,
1: I did take my CD collection um, and there was a bit of Boney M in my CD collection, so it was pretty funny driving around Alaska listening to that. <laughs>
0: Tell us about Samoa. What were you there for? Well, nothing spiritual. (laughs) (laughs) Were you there for work?
1: No, I went with friends um, just to go to Samoa. It's actually, you know, having been to Fiji, I actually preferred it. I thought it was extremely beautiful. Um, Much less developed, um, you know, beautiful sort of pure Polynesian culture um, and amazing places to stay, you know, right on the beach in little huts where you could just enjoy um was it beer o'clock might have been 10 i think or was it 11 can't remember but um, (laughs) but it was fantastic beautiful warm water and you could just um totally relax profoundly relaxing place i found yeah just um staying on a on a lagoon for a week or so um with a beautiful family preparing all the meals in the kitchen and and uh, traveled from around the world and um yeah it was superb and um those coconuts fantastic
0: Oh, well, that's, that's another, another place for people to put onto their travel agenda if they haven't already got
2: it there. What's a mm. Fafahini?
1: What's a Fafahini? That's a really good question, Russ. You know, I think, I think it's an interesting concept, but I think it's, uh, from what I understand, it's how they kind of integrate, to, to some extent, gay culture into, into, their, into their way of life. But you do meet the Fafahinis, and they're beautiful young men. Um, who dress essentially as women or look like women, very feminine, That's very right. beautiful, but they actually have a very special place in their culture, um, and they're they're sort of, um, I guess, um, almost groomed in a way to be to, to to be like that from quite a young age. They're identified and they have a special place in their culture, from a sort of um, you know knowledge perspective, and and uh, they're lovely. and I, I think I do recall what, going out for a few walks to, to see if I could meet a Fafahani. <laughs> On the odd occasion, but then I, I, I met. Well, I think I met one the first time in just a little cafe, having having a bite of lunch, and he was just beautiful.
2: And um, they did love them because it's um, anybody that can do. My understanding of Polynesian culture is anyone that can do the job of a man and a and a woman is is revered in the culture. So mm. yeah, they were very um very special people over there. Which is so
1: they're very very lovely people, very warm, friendly. Um, the men are absolutely strapping, and the women are just exquisitely beautiful. The dancing, fantastic. And, of course, the tattoos, if you're into tattoos, the full-body tattoos are quite amazing to to see. Um, The women, of course, don't have to have the full body. They only have to have a half body because of the fact that they bear the pain in childbirth. So that's the compensation. Over there. You only have to have the half-body tattoo. What's it
2: like staying in a bure on the water?
1: Fantastic. Uh, it's so humid that you really wouldn't want to have it any other way. Very simple. You a know, mattress on the floor, light bulb. Um, you can, you know, drop down the, the sides at night. Um, just lying listening to the waves. Magic. And, of course, beautiful, um, you know, the village chief's daughters came and w- would wake you up in the morning and say, come and have breakfast. So... You know, and they would clean everything every day around the bureau. It was just beautiful. The fale actually, I think it's called. There. Well,
2: my cohort Joe is is a five star resortee lady. Would you recommend a bureau to Joe or?
1: Look, I would. I think it's um, it's authentic. Mm. You can stay at the five-star – if you're a five-star kind of girl, go and stay a five-star for a few nights and go and do the other for a few as well.
0: Yeah, it's good to mix it up. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but I can I, honestly, we, when I stayed at the five-star resort, we used to go down for breakfast every morning and, we, we, you know, there were banana trees hanging off the sides of the roads everywhere but they never had bananas for breakfast. I don't know what the, <laughs> the mystery of that was but um, – They're they, all exported. You ask for bananas at breakfast and they say, no bananas today and it's like, well, hang on, what's that hanging over there on that tree – it was a bit of a mystery. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Only the Samoans know the answer to that one
0: Now, Russ, have you got anything to rant about quickly today? I've got a
2: very quick rant today And my rant is the A380, biggest aircraft yes. in the world It's modern, it's yep. gorgeous it's One of my favourites yep. 500 people on board, luxurious, quiet engines It's the talk of the town yep. In fact, you know I Great know.
0: oxygen in, in yeah. the cabin
2: Emirates yep. has 76 of them It's go, it's go, go Qantas go. got them Yeah, they do It's all happening all over the world the only thing I don't like about the A380 is when 5,000 bags come off the plane. And you, you know laughed. how airlines talk about this on-time thing, right? We've taken off on time, we've landed 45 minutes early, and in three hours' time your bag is going to come off. Oops. I don't know. I don't know. You know, they need to and build... Further, the, build these facilities at Melbourne Airport, because I do find if you're on an A380, um, the, the wait for bags can be anything up to an hour after you've landed. So it's, what do you yeah,
0: think? Yeah, I think there's definitely an issue at Melbourne Airport. Um, I'm not sure what it's all about, but we might have to do some investigative journalism and find out why it is that the bags from the A380 at Tullamarine take so long to come off of the
2: plane. And then the the queue is three deep and there's this bun fight. People aren't nice after a 14-hour flight. Have you no, noticed that? No, they're not.
0: And and also the quarantine queues are not um, – you can't actually tell if someone's in, in the quarantine queues because sometimes they're so long yeah. that they're actually snaking around the um,
2: the, the baggage, baggage
0: claim. Yeah, that's right. and And it's insane.
1: But it has improved. I mean, if you can just wave your passport with the chip – at the machine yes. and keep walking. I mean, I love that.
0: That's that's pretty cool, but it's once you get through there that it's a <laughs> oh, bit of a nightmare. Not.
1: The quarantine, I always um, declare anything and then you tell them what it is and they wave me through. But I did have a friend who has a problem with customs. He, he was once oh spotted bringing home some fur... G string, I think it, I can't remember what. Anyway, <laughs> okay, he had to. it's
2: me. I bought a mink jockstrap in Alaska once.
0: Of course, uh, that's what everybody now, would do.
2: Now, uh, wouldn't you think customs would be nice and just wave me through? Yeah, no, well, no, why? no, no. Why
0: did you declare your underwear? I, do, I don't well, know, it know it what for, I was declaring. You know, it was you for, have to tick yeah. me an, the box and say.
2: Now, interestingly enough, this man in customs chose to take out my mink jockstrap, yes, lift it up and show it to everybody else in the customs building and say, "Hey guys, check this out." <laughs>
1: as you would. But I think we were both wearing pretty funny T-shirts at that stage too, weren't we, Russ? Yeah, yeah. Sort of like puns on, you know, um, all sorts of things. I think I was wearing a little T-shirt which had a beaver on it, not the the animal but the plane, Um, because everyone in Alaska goes everywhere on a little water plane and lands because there's not enough roads. And um, something I think my T-shirt was something about, I'll repair your beaver.
0: Oh, dear. (laughs) It's time for us to say farewell. So, Russ, we... I have to big thank you to to Sarah Meehan for a terrific show today. Thank you for sharing all of your travel stories. Thank you. It's been great. I've got a feeling there's probably a whole lot more that we didn't even get
2: to. Ah. No, you're a woman of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Alaska, the Berlin Wall, Egypt, you name it, you've done it. Love it.
0: Thanks for listening to a Joycast from Joy 94.9.